this morning to John, John chapter 11. I had mentioned last week about the scripture journals, or Daryl had said something about the scripture journals, and that triggered some of you to look for them out in the back, um, our, 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 our literature tables back there, and they were gone. So I ordered a few more, so I have a few more out there since, uh, since we will be spending uh, quite some time yet here in the Gospel of John, so if you want to pick one of those up, you can. There are some more out there. So um, you can either open your Scripture journal this morning or open your Bible or open your phone, however you view God's Word, and you can follow along there. This morning we're going to continue through this story of Lazarus, and it's a long story, and there's there's so much to it, but I'm trying to get through it as quickly as as I can, and so I leave so much out of, of each portion of Scripture. So I, I pray that um, that you will find it, it meaningful as we continue to work through our this story here this morning. So this morning we're going to cover verses 17 through 37. And again, we're not going to be able to cover each verse or each this whole section in depth. Um, but we'll highlight a few uh, points that, that I have from these few verses. And so we want to start out as we do every morning, Sunday morning, by putting God's Word before us first and foremost before we start into this. So John chapter 11, verse 17, and God's Word reads, So when Jesus came, He found that He had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews, who were with her in the house, consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly, and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? Lord, now as we um, come 
to these words and we add our two cents to it, if you will. Father, we would ask that you would bless the reading of your word and that the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help illuminate our minds, illuminate this text uh, so that we can um, understand the story and understand not just the story, but also how to apply it and how it may be applicable for our life even today. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Jesus wept. It would seem as though a few biblical verses take on meaning all of their own. John chapter 3.16 would be one such verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. In John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friend. And in this political season, we see this Bible verse on placards throughout yards as we drive up and down the roads, and that is 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face Turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Many more could be listed, but I think these few give you an idea. Religious and non-religious alike will recognize some of these verses. The sad truth is, though, that often these verses are extracted, are taken out of the context in which they find themselves. And in today's text, we have such a verse. A verse that is known for many as having the exclusive privilege as of being the shortest verse in all the biblical text. And I remember and I recall my, myself, maybe as you yourself do, when you were supposed to memorize verses, this was the perfect one to pick, was it not? Because it was only two words, Jesus wept. And this, true to form, often is taken out of context also. Or at least it's often misunderstood but what is meant by Jesus wept. And so the beauty and the fear of preaching week by week is that the preacher must dig into the text. A preacher must bring meaning to, to, to verses, no matter how challenging they are as they come before us. We cannot necessarily sit in the tension of those. And that is a privilege and it also brings fear. But nonetheless, today's shortest verse is such a case. Jesus wept. Jesus showed compassion. Jesus showed His humanity. Jesus wept over the loss of a friend. And these are often the thoughts that are brought to the meaning of this particular text. But I wonder, is that truly what is meant by this text? Is that really the correct understanding that we should have of this verse? Now, obviously, we do know that Jesus, throughout the biblical text, has Scripture interprets Scripture. We see the compassion of Jesus throughout our biblical text. But every time I read this particular verse, Jesus wept, or got smart about it anyways, by saying I could cite a Bible verse, I was always left with a little uneasy feeling. Why would Jesus cry? Why did Jesus weep when He knew exactly what He was going to do? I mean, did not Jesus know that He was going to raise Lazarus from the grave? Did He not know that? And I think He did. And if He did, then what caused Jesus to weep? I would think that 
instead of crying as Jesus met the folks, he would have said, I got this, y'all. Wait and see what I'm going to do. Be prepared to be amazed. That's probably the attitude I would have taken, but then again, I'm not Jesus, am I? Um, But why did Jesus weep when Jesus knew what was about to happen? Well, that's for the end of our text today, but there's a lot that comes before it. And so let's look at what precedes this particular verse. Let's see what precedes these two very famous little words of, of Jesus wept. And so first, I, I do want to two things before we really get rolling this morning. And, and I want to remind you here in verse 17 um, of what is before us to set the stage again of what we kind of finished off with, with last week, since this is one long narrative. And so in verse 17, it says, when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been dead, had already been in the tomb for four days. What is the significance of the four days? Well, I'm not sure, but there again, as we've seen last week, well, I do know, but we'll get there. But as we've seen again last week, um, that Jesus waited for two whole days before he went to Lazarus. Now, what we have to remember is where Jesus was, that Jesus was a good day. Some say uh, somewhere, you don't know exactly where he was, but he was probably at least 25 miles from Bethany, from Jerusalem, which... Bethany was just outside of Jerusalem. Um, and he was about 25 miles. And so by the time the memo got to Jesus that Lazarus was sick, that Lazarus was on the verge of death, a whole day had passed. So Jesus waited two days. And so then when Jesus went to, La- to where Lazarus was, right, that's another whole day of travel. And there we have the four days and that we know as we see in our text today that when Jesus got there, Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And so my point that I'm trying to make here this morning is that just because Jesus waited a two days doesn't mean that if he would have gone, that, that Lazarus would have still been living because that would have not been the case. And so what is the significance of John telling us that Jesus waited two whole days before he went to Lazarus? Why did he go there? Now, we know throughout the whole biblical text, there's only three times that Jesus brought back to life, not including himself, but, but three times that Jesus brought back to life someone in the, in, in the text. Now, I'm sure he did it other times, but it's only three times that, that we know of that's been recorded for us in the Bible. The first is that, that, that Mark and John, they record the account of, of Jesus bringing back to life the daughter of the synagogue official. Now, Mark calls this, this, this official Jairus. So uh, Matthew doesn't tell us who his name was, but we do believe it's the same story. Uh, and he brought back to life. So, so the, the, the synagogue official comes to Jesus and says, come, my daughter has, has, has just died on, on the verge of death. And Jesus drops what he's doing. He goes to the house. The flute players are in the house, right? The, they're, they're there. They're, they're mourning the loss, the death that just occurred of this daughter. And Jesus says, okay, you all get out. And into the house he brings with him J- Peter, James, and John. The three stooges of the three amigos, right? He brings Peter, James, and John into the house with him that he often brought with him. Everyone else he put out. He touched the girl and the girl came back to life. That's one account. We have another account and that's in Luke chapter seven. We have this story of when Jesus came into the city, they were carrying a casket out of the city, out to the cemetery, out to the tombs, out to the burial grounds. And Jesus touched the casket, and the man rose up out of the casket. And then we have, of course, Lazarus. Those are the two 
the, the, the three instances where Jesus raised somebody back to life. Well, what's the point? Well, this is the point. Um, and so the girl had just died. This, this person that Jesus met coming out of the city that Luke records for us, this man just obviously just died. They didn't have ways to prepare a body, so when someone died, they were buried quickly. So both the girl and this guy would have been uh, dead not very long. I mean, it just happened. The death just occurred when Jesus came along. Some scholars, let's come back to our day today, some scholars, some very liberal scholars would say, well, well these two people weren't really dead at all. They were in a coma or something like that, and so they just thought they were dead because, of course, they didn't have the doctors that we have today. And so they just thought that they were dead, but they weren't really dead. Those who want to dispute the accuracy of the biblical text would say that. Well, it's just like as though Jesus knew. Jesus knew what we would think today in 2020 and said, well, I'm going to make sure that this next person I raise from the dead, now this is me, the next person that Jesus is, that I'm going to raise from the dead, I'm going to make sure he's good and dead. That way they can't say that. Now think about it. Four days, they had no ways to preserve a body. And so what do you think happened? What do you think? Do you think that person was dead? Well, in the words of Martha, Lord, by now he stinketh, as the new King James would, as the King James would say. But Lord, by now he has a stench. You can't, you can't open up the tomb. So without a doubt, there is, there, we, we, we must understand that this person, that Lazarus, was indeed no longer living. And so that's the one thing I want to point out about the significance that maybe John is, 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 wants us to take away from this text, uh, the duration of time. And the second thing that I want you to notice in this particular text is in verse 18, I believe. Yeah, verse 18. Now, Bethany, was just outside of Jerusalem. So the text says two miles, and it's just a little bit less than, than two miles where Bethany was outside of Jerusalem. What's the significance of that? Well, the significance of that is, if you remember, that they were just trying, these religious officials, uh, the Bible always uh, records for, for the Jews, but when it says that, uh, you know, they were all Jewish people, so we must understand it. We must, it's better to understand that these self-righteous religious people, that's a better way of understanding it. So all these self-righteous religious people that were looking to kill Jesus... Well, their headquarters was where? In Jerusalem, right? And Bethany was just outside of Jerusalem. And so I think there's some significance there as to why uh, John records that for us. And if you look at verse 28, let's jump ahead just a little bit. If you remember, when Martha goes to tell Mary, it says that Martha went secretly to tell Mary. Well, why? Because again, these self-righteous religious people had come to mourn with Martha and Mary. Martha and Mary Lazarus must have been a prominent family of the day, and so they were a lot there, and so Martha tried to do it to do it secretly there, so that they would not understand that, and that they would not see that. So the very folks that were attempting to kill Jesus were there, were right there also. And so <clears throat> I want you to notice in verse nineteen, in verse nineteen, that I want to establish just a little bit something here with this point. So um, in verse 19 tells us that, that many of the Jews, many of the self-righteous religious people had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So we have many of these people, many of these enemies of Jesus, if you want to say, were there. Now, now, now drop down to the end of the text or at the end of uh, this story of Lazarus to verse 45. 
We'll, we'll get there next week, but I just want to lay some groundwork for next week. So verse 45, therefore, many of these self-righteous religious people who had come to Mary. So here we have, here we have them again. And then we just drop down to verse 46. Some of these, some of these religious folks, some of these self-righteous religious people, came to believe in Jesus, it will tell us in verse 45. Some came to believe. Verse 46, some came to believe in verse 45. In verse 46, some of them said, I'm going to go tell on them. And so they went to the headquarters and told the Pharisees about what is going on. And then we see it in uh, verse 47, just, just like any good church group, right? I mean, First thing they had to do is form a committee. <laughs> they had to form a council. They had to convene a council to decide, okay, how are we going to handle this situation that we, that we have before us? You see it there in verse 47. So you had some of these people that, that were there at the funeral. Some of them believed in Jesus. Some of them went and told, and the others tried to form a committee to see how can we head this off. This problem that we thought was now gone, we thought he turned his back and ran, he's back, what are we going to do about him? And so they formed this particular committee. But what was the threat? What was so threatening about Jesus? Well, in verse uh, 48, we see this committee, they said, if we let him, if we let Jesus go on like this, all men, hyperbola, I thought it was all, but nonetheless, a lot of them, all men were, will believe in him. And, see, here's the crux of the matter. And the Romans, they're going to come and take away both our place and our nation. So Jesus is causing us problems with the political people, the, the Romans who ran the area, who ran the country, they're going to say, no, 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 you religious people. You're going to have to, squ- we're going to have to crush you. You, you cannot have this uprising. You cannot have this unrest. We live in a peaceful society. We live in a peaceful country. And so they're going to, to do away with us and they're going to do away with our nation. They're going to do away with our synagogue. They're going to do away with our, our very way of life. That is it. That was the problem with Jesus. The problem is that the Romans, Jesus is going to cause them to lose their power, to lose their control. And this is ultimately what got Jesus killed. It was his threat to their traditions and to their control that got Jesus killed. Look at verse 53. Verse 53 would tell us that. So from that day on, This committee decided that from that day on, they planned together to kill Jesus. That was the plan that they came out of this particular committee. And just like any good plan, and just like any good crime or mystery movie or book, if you're into reading that type of stuff, in chapter 12, we're going to jump way ahead a little bit. In chapter 12, verse 10, not only are we going to get rid of Jesus... But we got to get rid of the evidence. We're also going to have to get rid of Lazarus because if he's the man that we were there, we seen what happened, we seen and we knew he was good and dead, and we seen Jesus raise him from the grave. And so for our plan to work, we're not only going to have to kill Jesus, but we're going to have to get rid of the evidence 
and we're going to have to chuck him out. We're going to have to chuck him into the river or wherever they were going to put him. They needed to get rid of the particular witness, and that was Lazarus. And so now I want to read to you also verse uh, 7 through 17 through 19 and verse 12. Are you following me this morning? I feel as though I'm losing you. Okay, you're with me. Okay, because I'm confused in my mind. So good, I'm glad you're all with me yet. You can help me out. So verse 12, chapter 12. See, see, I told you. Chapter 12, verse 17 through 19. And so the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him, about Jesus. For this reason, also the people went and met Jesus because they heard that Jesus had performed these signs. And so the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you are not doing any good at all. Your planning has not come into fruition. Look, the world has gone after him. They've gone after Jesus. This is the dilemma that they find out as, as they find themselves in. Well, catch your breath. Um, John Muir, or Murr, um, not John Muir, the, the hiker guy. Uh, John Meyer, I guess, might be the pronunciation of this author's name in a book called The Marginal Jews. It's actually a four-volume, four or five volumes. I don't know, it's just a lot of historical content of Jesus. But but he says this in The Marginal Jew, rethinking the historical Jesus in volume two. He, he writes this, which I thought this was really fascinating. He writes this, he said, In John's story of Jesus, speaking right here, in John's story of Jesus, unlike the synoptic presentation, it is not the cleansing of the temple and the last verbal clashes with his enemies in Jerusalem, that bring Jesus to his trial and death? No. Instead, the fourth evangelist, John, the fourth evangelist places the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. And this was, this makes way for the raising, the raising of Lazarus as the immediate cause of Jesus' arrest and his execution. So, so again, uh, a footnote here. Many scholars, Many liberal scholars want to say, look, we can't trust, we can't believe the gospel of John because he gets the order out of order. We know that the cleansing of the temple didn't happen until the last week that Jesus went into Jerusalem. And John records it in the beginning. See, it's manipulation. See, it didn't really happen like this at all. Well, and there's some good good cause for, for thinking like that if we're approaching the text you know, already with the mindset that there's a bias, that there's agenda to it. And you know what? There is a bias to it. There is an agenda to it. Each biblical writer comes with an agenda, comes with a purpose as to why they're recording and why they're writing what they do. Each one has a purpose. Each one has an agenda, as all forms of media does. But the Bible, but is the Bible believable? Or is it not? Herman, uh, Herman Bovich writes this, a good Dutch Reformed guy who lived a long time ago. But, but he wrote this in the wonderful works of God. He said, Matthew writes the book of generation. That is the history of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Mark tells the gospel begins with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and took its points and its origins that started with him, with Jesus. Luke wants 
once by means of careful investigation and orderly account to give assurance to Theophilus concerning the things which are most surely believed in the circle of saints on the basis of the testimony of the apostles. And he's got an interesting way of writing it, but the whole point Luke wrote his gospel was that you may know that what you've been taught is accurate. Now, John, John writes his gospel in order that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, we may have life in his name, right? So make no mistake about it, each of the 66 authors of the Bible writes on purpose and for a purpose. And John is the giver, Jesus is the giver of life. No death, no resurrection, no life. That is the whole point of John writing his gospel. John's whole point for writing his gospel is that life begins, starts, ends, stems from Jesus. Look at verses 24 through verse 26 of John chapter 11. Back to our text here today. In verses 24 to 26, when Jesus goes to Martha, Martha, do, do you know he's going to rise again? See, all the, all the religious beliefs, all the, the pagan religions and all the religions of the world believe in some type of life after death, some type of resurrection. And so Martha says, yes, Lord, I know that he will rise on the last day. But Jesus says this in verse 24 or verse 25. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Martha says, yes. I love this answer from Martha. She says, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who is to come in the world. And then she takes off. You know, I'm left. And that material will stay on my desk. But, but, but I'm left with this idea. Did Martha, did she really understand? Did she really believe? Well, I think she did, but she certainly didn't understand. But the confession that we see from here is so pure, just like Peter's. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of God. That was Martha. Martha says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the prophet who all the Old Testament, all the Jewish Bible is pointing towards to come. It's a threefold confession, but, but that, that'll, that'll maybe for some time down the road, but we'll leave that set for now. What I want to do, though, is focus in again on this idea of believe. This idea of believe. Um, verse 40 of our 11th chapter says, if you believe. Verse 42, so that they may believe. Verse 45, believe in him. Verse 48, all men will believe in him. Chapter 12, verse 11, believing in Jesus. Do you believe? Do you believe? Have you recognized Jesus? Have you recognized this guy as the Son of God, as the Christ, as the Messiah? Can you make that confession with Mary this morning or with Martha this morning? Yes, Lord, I believe. You are the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah who's coming into the world to take away the sins of the world, to take away your sins, to take away to take away mine. But believing doesn't mean that we're perfect, does it? This earpiece is, I'm sorry, it's irritating me this morning. I don't mean to distract you, but <clears throat> it keeps flopping around. So uh, 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 this, this, um, this believing, sometimes we think that as a Christian people, 
either if we're one of those self-righteous religious people um, or if we're one who, who doesn't have a lot of assurance of our own faith. Um, sometimes we think, but, but man, Lord, if I truly believe, why do I keep messing up? If I truly believe, why do I keep doing what I don't want to do? Well, you're in good hands with the Apostle Paul said the same thing, right? And sometimes we think that just because we're Christians or just because they claim or confess to be Christian that they shouldn't act in such a way. And I agree. But believing, being a child of God, doesn't make us perfect. And so um, I want to highlight that in verse, uh, verses uh, 21 and 32 here, where Martha and Mary themselves seem to have fallen prey uh, to that imperfection when they say, Lord, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would have not have died. Lord, if you would have been here, my, my brother would not have died. And so Martha continues. I love Martha. Martha continues and says, Lord, um, uh, verse uh, 22. So she said, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 22, Martha continues and says, okay, Lord, since you weren't here and since you failed us, I'm going to tell you how to fix it. Right? That's what she's saying. I'm going to tell you how to fix it, Jesus. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. That's a Martha, isn't it? Martha says, I'm going to give you a second chance, God. You're going to come along. Now, this is me again reading into the text, so, so you do with it what you will. But I can just envision what might have been going through a Martha. Say, God, okay, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But, but, but I know you still have an opportunity to make this thing right. What do we see with, Mar with Mary? See, Mary comes to Jesus, throws herself at Jesus' feet, and says, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. We see a fixer in Martha. We see a fixer say, listen, this is how to get her done. And we see Mary just come overcome by despair, right? I mean, this is what I'm reading from these two, these two ladies, not criticizing them, but just relating to them that they're no different than you and I. I mean, sometimes that's exactly how we are, is it not? That we come to God and say, God, I know this is messed up. God, I, 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 I know what's going on. But this is how it can be fixed. Or we give up in despair. We give up in despair. But Mary and Martha, there was one thing that they forgot. Remember the Capernaum, the, 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 uh, the royal official's son um, who was healed from a long distance off. Jesus doesn't know time and space, right? And they kind of they kind of forgot that. And so we must know that also. You know, it's kind of like it's kind of like sales 101. For them, some of you who have been in sales, um, um, especially uh, lumber salesmen. I will not look at Jonathan. Um, but, you know, construction guys, they don't care what you've done for me lately, right? What are you going to do for me today, right? That's how we operate. That's how we function. And I think that's how we can be in our spiritual life also. It's like, God, I, I know what you've done for me in the past. But today's today. That was yesterday. Today's today. And so I just want to encourage you. Don't become discouraged. Don't try to tell God how to fix it, but rest, rest in a moment. Jesus can't even pray. Can't even pray. Sometimes we may find there. Don't even not, prayers don't even go through the ceiling. I was reminded of Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 27, where Paul wrote this to the church in Rome. He said, you know, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. 
For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts and the minds of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints. And He knows. God knows. Jesus knows what the will of God is. What the will of God is. This is where I believe Mary and Martha found themselves. Mary was in despair. Martha was saying, make it happen. I'm sure, I'm sure you may have found yourself there a time or two also that you can relate to these two sisters, maybe in a different way than you've thought of them before. But I want you to also notice the gentleness of Jesus. The gentleness of, of Jesus. Where Martha says, Jesus... And I don't want to read too much into the text, but, but Jesus, uh, okay, if you'd have been here, my brother would have died, but since you weren't here, I'm going to give you a pass on that. Now, this is what you can do to fix it. What's Jesus' response? I know what mine would have been. But uh, the, Jesus responds, hey, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus is one of the, one of the great I am statements. We find it here. I am the resurrection and the life. I think he's being very gentle with Mary. Just like Isaiah 42, 3. A bruised reed he will not break. And a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. It's a verse that is, I've read off and on for my own personal encouragement at times. There are times where your faith, my faith, can be like that bruised reed can be like that wick that's almost going out. That candle that is right at the last part of that wick. That it just doesn't take much of a breeze, right? And the candle is out. It doesn't take much of a breeze and that bruised reed, that plant, that leaf is falling over because it is bruised, right? So I would encourage you just as I encourage myself, just as I think what Jesus encouraged in the gentleness of Jesus to Mary and Martha is continue. Continue coming to Jesus. Continue to ask questions of Jesus. Continue to wrestle with Jesus. Lord, why are these things, things happening? Jesus has a gentle way of pulling us alongside and not, not discouraging us. Unlike sometimes as humans, we can, we can become more of a discouragement than a help, but that's not Jesus. And so next, though, I want to focus on verse 33, and then we'll close at verse 35, and we'll just have to leave the rest um, for, for some time, it's another time, I guess. But um, I want to focus in on verse 33. Um, because verse 33, let me just read it to you again so that you have it before you once again. And then when Jesus, therefore, so finally he got there and he got to the people, right? And when Jesus, therefore, saw her, saw Mary weeping and saw the Jews, the, the, all those self-righteous people who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. He was deeply moved in spirit and, with tr and, and he was, was troubled. Now what we must understand, and this is where I want to go back to what I started with. This is where sometimes maybe we, we can take some of these verses out of context. But, but the deeply troubled, the deeply troubled, if we were going to look into the original languages, which, which I did, um, it, it, it comes from the word that would, would be to feel strongly about something. Maybe, maybe even an anger. 
Maybe even a, a, a frustration. Maybe a, a displeasure. Maybe to warn sternly or a scolding. It has a harshness about this particular word that, 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 is, that John is recording, that, that Jesus was, was deeply moved. He was deeply, there was a harshness about that particular word. In extra biblical literature, it, the, the word is used to describe snorting horses. Snorting horses. Five times throughout the New Testament, this word is used. And let me just go over them really quickly with you. In Matthew, it's used to sternly warn the two blind men that Jesus gave them their sight and sternly warned them, tell no one. It's also used when Jesus healed the leper, and Jesus again sternly warned the leper and said, don't, don't go tell anyone. And it's also used when Mary came and anointed the feet of Jesus with that very expensive perfume, and Judas scolded, there's our word, scolded her for it. And then it's used twice in our text here, in our story here before us today. In verse, the one I just read, and then also it's, it's used down in verse, verse 38. That'll be for next week. And so, so in light of this, in light of the use of this word, how, how do we, how do we understand what Jesus is doing here? What Jesus is telling us here? What John is recording here for us? So we need to understand that, that Jesus was frustrated. And that Jesus was frustrated, and maybe he, he was even a bit angered. Um, I was surprised after I'd done some of that research and I started reading a lot of the other translations, which I would commend you also to do. I think the, the NASB is the most accurate, but it doesn't always help us in our English. And so, so the New Living Translation, which is as loose of a translation as you can get, but I was shocked at their interpretation of, of this particular verse. And it says this, a deep anger welled up within him. They got it right. A deep anger welled up within Jesus. And he troubled himself and went to the people. Why? Why was this? Religious people should have known better. They are grieving as the pagans grieve. Remember, this is a funeral. This is a place where Lazarus has just died. Their friend has just died, and the people are acting in such a way that even pagans themselves would act as one who has no hope. First Thessalonians warns us against this. It says, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who, have, who are asleep. Remember our conversation from last week? For those who have fallen asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope grieve. See, we grieve. Every single one of us this morning has lost a loved one. You have. Every single one of us has. Maybe they're in your mind right now, and we grieve. We mourn the loss of our loved ones, but not in a way that we have no hope, not in a way um, that, that we, we, we feel as though all is lost. And even in the words of Martha herself, yes, I know my brother will rise again at the last day of the resurrection. This is why Jesus wept. He knew what he was going to do. But Jesus wept over the lostness of the religious people. Isaiah 53, 3, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised 
and we did not esteem him. Remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem, that very famous passage that Jesus came in and he was outside of the city. He wept over the city because he knew what he was walking into. He knew what he came in. He knew he was going, going to be rejected. Those who should have recognized him and accepted him instead rejected him. Those who should have recognized instead rejected. And Jesus wept. Jesus grieved. Jesus was angry that they didn't recognize him or accept him. See, grief without outrage is just an emotional feeling, is, is pity. It's pity. Outrage without grief is self-righteous arrogance. So what are we supposed to do with this then? Well, there's two ways that we can understand this, <clears throat> this anger, this grieving, this deeply moved of Jesus. One is that, that Jesus was angered. Jesus was deeply grieved at the brokenness of the world, right? I mean, we don't have to look very far where we ourselves see the brokenness of the world. Where we see that how many babies a year are never even given a chance to live and are aborted. How many families are broken up? How many? You can just go right down the list of the evils that happen within our world around us. And yes, we too should be angered by this, just as Jesus was grieved here. And the anger and the outrage of Jesus was also directed towards the unwillingness, the unwillingness to believe and to repent, the unwillingness for those who should have recognized Jesus instead chose to turn their back on Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.4, we are told that Jesus desires that all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Some, some are realists, as we've seen in Thomas last week. Some refuse to surrender their will to God. Others give up with despair. It's a story of life. It's a story about life. It's a story about who is the giver of life. Who is the giver of life? Who is in control of life? Who sets your life? in the motion, and controls each aspect of it. That's for next week. As we look at the Jesus calling forth Lazarus from the tomb. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the stories that you have recorded for us on purpose, for a purpose. I pray, Lord, as we think about a few of these things, that we take these things to heart. And even in our own self, Lord, as sometimes as we wrestle and sometimes we may come to you, Lord, if only, if only you would have done this, if only you would have not let me do this. Lord, I thank you for accepting us where we are. I thank you for handling us gently. So I pray, Lord, the things that were spoken this morning, Father, those are from, that are from you. Father, may those things take root in our heart and those that are not. Father, just expel those from our memory. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.